Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. My guest today is something of a retail specialist. Uh, I'll allow him to introduce himself. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you, Nick. Uh, my name is uh, David Wilkinson, and I'm the executive director of Steen and Strom. Well, Steen and Strom is a is a department store, and it's um, it's located in uh, well, located in obviously the centre of centre of Oslo, uh, equidistant between the uh, train station and uh, the central station and uh, the palace. Um, and yeah, Steen Strom was, was was born in 1797, so it's traded uh, on Karl Johans Garta uh, since you know 1797. It's 223 years, 223 years old. Um, and like most good department stores, it started started life as a um, as a shop for general provisions. Grocery, and subsequently grew into a uh, into a fully fledged um, department store, and it's been in the same location and pretty much the same building for all those years. Well, actually, the, it it was rebuilt in um, uh, 1932, and the architect was um, Norwegian um, Ola Sevra. Um, and I think that the, you know, that the, uh, the building itself has many of the, the original, uh, features which were, you know, designed into the, you know, the then scheme. I mean, Steen and Strom in the 1930s was built to rival the department stores of, uh, London and Paris. And, you know, visitors to the store used to come and marvel at the, uh, at the escalators, which at that stage were, um, you know, considered to be something of an, of an you know, an attraction. Mm. But you're at Stern and Stem now, but if we sort of look back in time to your career, you have been various places. So if we could go right back to what happened after you start, finished at Ryden Secondary Modern in 1979... I'm sorry if I sort of age you a bit here. That must have been where you started your career in retail. Well, actually, I started my career in um, retail as a Saturday boy working for a hardware shop um, called Palmer's Limited. And Palmer's Limited was on a parade, a shopping parade, um, somewhere between Hersham and and Walton-on-Thames. And Palmer's was the kind of shop that you would you would go to to buy um, half a dozen, you know, half a dozen uh, crosshead screws, or um, you know, light bulbs, or peat for your garden, or perhaps um, leave your lawnmower uh, for a pair. And I started uh, my career there working. Uh, as a Saturday boy for um, uh, somebody called John Palmer, who in fact had two stores, one located, um, let's say, uh, let's call it Hersham, and another one in Ashdead Leatherhead. And in point of fact, he he was uh, 
he was very very good at developing and and training uh, training people um, and we we set about a kind of two-year program of you know working on Saturdays there was no Sunday trading at that stage in the United Kingdom and subsequently um, you know the the work was extended to uh, you know school vacation periods um, and a while later after uh, you know resitting my O-levels, which are now called GCSEs. Um, I was not particularly academic. Um, uh, he offered me a full-time job. And I'd, it was quite strange because I'd, I'd applied for um, a retail training course with uh, Debenhams. And actually, the, you know, the, this was Debenhams in Guildford, which had a kind of flagship department store. And the offer from Palmer's was just so much more attractive. I decided to stay local. Um, and I guess with Palmer's, you know, the joy of, of working for an entrepreneur with two hardware shops is that you you did a little bit of everything. Um, and you were also part of a communi- community of kind of shopkeepers on this you know, quite traditional kind of parade Um you know, this is late seventies Britain, so we're you know there were you know discernible um, you know discernible uh, sort of stereotypes in terms of customers and um, yeah cultures, um, and it was a very interesting you know very interesting kind of uh, yeah period for me actually because as a result of that that work at Palmer's. Um, one one day I I served the you know the personnel director of Harrods. I didn't know this person was the, the personnel director of Harrods. And I, I made a delivery of various items in the Bedford 1.4 litre diesel delivery van uh, to this person's house one evening and she engaged me in conversation and um, sub- subsequently said, why don't you come for an interview at Harrods? Well, you know, as a, a suburban, uh, suburban uh, uh, 18-year-old, 19-year-old, I'd never had that opportunity to visit, to visit Harrods. And, yeah, that was the kind of beginning of the next, of the next uh, you know, phase. That must have been quite mind blowing because, well, for for an eighteen year old lad from not you weren't even in the suburbs, were you? Uh, you were in Surrey, I imagine. Yeah, Surrey, but it was kind of um, you know. I, I think there's a a sort of a, a certain yeah thing that you think of when you when you say the words Surrey or the word Surrey, um, and I, you know, I I I feel that. Um, you know, I was kind of quite fortunate, really, to make this delivery on that particular evening, um, because actually, um, this this, um, this you know this customer had a very beautiful garden in one of those traditional kind of you know several storied Victorian houses, um, and it transpired her husband was also the book buyer for Harrods, so um, you know. This, Turned into into quite a fortuitous, uh, yeah, delivery, 
because I kind of beetled up a few weeks later up to Harrods for this interview. Um, and yeah, I was offered this offered this job to, to join as a sales associate in in men's accessories, selling um, you know cashmere cashmere scarves, lamb's wool scarves, gloves, all that kind of paraphernalia um, that you used to have in a men's accessories uh, department, which incidentally was just through door five and on the to the right of door five at Harrods. Um, and I joined Harrods in 1981. Um, so, yeah, quite an interesting time. So that must have made an incredible change from working in a small hardware shop because what, what was Harrods like in those days? Well, Harrods, um, I mean, I tend to think of Harrods at that particular time as uh, a kind of a university, you know, um, you have to imagine that it, you know, it employed three and a half thousand people in a single location, which in itself is no small feat. And there was real opportunity to, to you know, to learn and grow um, at Harrods, as in fact there had been opportunity to do that at, at Palmer's. Um, but of course, you know, working within a much larger business, there are. You know there are uh, you know various well there were various levels of management um, that you had to uh, you know you had to you, you became part of a much larger community and so um, yeah this was a, a world of kind of you know wonderment um, and you know certainly at that stage and probably now you know Harrods uh, you know was the leading department store location globally um and yeah it was the most you know most fantastic opportunity you know we had to we had to wear um suits that were either blue gray or black and you know shirting was prescriptive uh you had to wear a, a tie your shoes had to be black I think at that stage, um, there may have been a concession to Cordovan. I can't quite remember, um, but certainly this was, you know, the Harrods of the early eighties. This was a you know destination for, you know, uh, VIPs and the and the uh, the wealthy, and of course, you know, its moniker at that stage was, you know, the you know the top person's store. Did you enjoy working there? <laughs> I did enjoy working there. I mean, I, I you know, I kind of, as, as I've said already, Nick, I was super lucky. You know, I, I, I was given this table of scarves to look after. Um, and, you know, retailing in those days was, you know, was, was, you know, if you were hired as a sales associate at Harrods, your, you know, your working week was five and a half days long. Um, and, you know, as a newcomer to the business, you were given a Monday afternoon off work, which you can, as you can imagine, Monday afternoon off, off work was not much, uh, it was not a great deal of, uh, of fun. But certainly this table of, of scarves and the buying, um, the buyer, you know, all of the buyers at that stage sourced, you know, product internationally. Uh, for Harrods, and so I was given the, the job of 
color blocking from light to dark, um, the cashmere, the cashmere table. Um, and, you know, you can imagine this beautiful mahogany table in the center of uh, men's accessories and these um, scarves, which I think at the time were Johnston's, Johnson's or Johnston's of Elgin. Um, Probably still are. Yeah, cashmere, you know, beautiful to handle. Um, and I, I, I did this display of cashmere. And uh, at that stage, there was a buying office, which was called the Associated Merchandising Corporation. And they were basically the, the kind of go-to um, company that most of the buyers used who sourced internationally. And so if a buyer went to a foreign market, um, they would typically be accompanied by a, uh, an AMC uh, specialist who would take them to various sources of uh, interest in the local marketplace. And it just so happened that somebody from AMC New York was uh, in Harrods and saw this you know, table of scarves and commented on it and the divisional manager a guy called joe coxwell um, who was responsible for menswear and various other bits and pieces uh, he called me into his office and said that this person had commented on this on the visual merchandising for this cashmere uh, table and um, he was going to put me forward to join the executive training scheme and you know i should perhaps clarify at the stage that you know the business had three training schemes it had a retail scheme a career scheme which was really for a-level uh, school leavers and the executive training scheme was for um university uh, graduates and it, you know i was just in the right place at the right time and you know, my career kind of accelerated because, you know, I, I joined the executive training scheme, which is really, it may be still to this day, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but it was an 18-month uh, program where you were given various assignments in different parts of the business, both front of house and, and back of house. So it kind of prepared you very well for a career in, in uh, department store retailing. And you did end up, staying for quite a while at Harrods. Yeah, I stayed for, um, I think, uh, let's see, now when did I leave Harrods? 96. I joined in, in 91. So I was there, I guess, almost kind of 15, uh, 15 years. And, you know, I, I was very fortunate. I became the book buyer. Uh, subsequently, um, became a, a kind of section manager, divisional manager. And then uh, eventually I was kind of promoted to director of operations, which um, was a, a fairly heavyweight responsibility for somebody at the, of the, you know, the age of uh, 32, you know. Um, and, of course, you know, we had very large-scale activities in the store, you know, I rather like that word activities. It reminds me of that movie uh, Step Brothers with uh, Will Ferrell. You know, <laughs> activities. But you know, actually, you know, Harrods. You know, was a, a, at that stage was the master of staging large scale 
large scale campaigns and promotions and you know whether it was um you know the sale or or easter or valentine um yeah so yeah very lucky um you know worked with some incredible people many of whom have gone on to do some really exciting exciting things and of course you know our, our kind of customer base at that time i remember when i was the book buyer you know my customers were sir michael kane uh, sir alec guinness we had many um yeah we had many uh musicians and uh politicians and people of note uh shopping shopping in the store um i once had the good fortune of uh serving david bowie and children's books you know i was almost kind of speechless you can imagine you know that was the, that was the world of of that particular venue at that you know that time that's amazing um but after 15 years at harrods you you moved onwards and upwards i take it yeah i was airlifted to uh Selfridges. Selfridges Oxford Street, and joined um, joined the team there uh, in uh, 1996. And yeah, I was general manager of the Oxford Street business and um, worked for uh, probably the most talented department store retailer um, on planet Earth. I mean, that's a fairly kind of dramatic thing to say, but somebody who's revolutionised kind of department store retailing in you know, several different uh, countries. And uh, yeah, I was really, f- I mean, what a great opportunity. So you're staying with the department stores for now, and that's really where you are again today, isn't it? You've been at a few major ones in between. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I've kind of, I mean, I, I view my career as being um, perhaps not typical because, um, you know, I've worked, I mean, in, well, the United Kingdom, uh, Italy, uh, Russia, um, the Gulf, uh, and, yeah, you know, now uh, Norway. But I guess the you know the kind of you know the mainstay is it's normally about uh, change and people and defining um, and creating you know creating uh, new opportunities uh, for you know you know for businesses. I mean, certainly, um, I've also you know I've worked for a very large scale apparel retailer in 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 russia a company called uh, tavayo which means yours in in russian and you know we grew the store estate in the mid noughties and into um you know the last decade um and actually you know i was there for you know quite some while you know you you, you tend to find that you know, there are two sorts of expat, expatriate worker in in uh, in Russia. There's the sort of consultant who sort of just jumps in and spends a few months maybe on the ground, and then there are others who stay for longer. And certainly, I you know I stayed for longer, and 
worked and and lived in in Moscow for a period of of four years, and then yeah, I, I went back to Russia, um, worked for a you know most beautiful um, business called Pont Rouge, based in St. Petersburg, which is you know kind of another version of Russia because Moscow in itself is a it's a country in its own right almost. Um, you know, it's a um, a vast a vast space um, with a population of almost 15 million people. Uh, St. Petersburg is rather smaller at uh, you know, six million inhabitants or thereabouts, and but it is the you know the seat of kind of learning in in the country. Um, so yeah, you know, the I guess the continuum is department store retailing or that's you know as the headhunters would say customer facing businesses hmm. i have to admit that after speaking with uh, david henderson of raketa and uh, learning about st petersburg i do would really like to visit there it sounds great yeah st petersburg is um is a more manageable um city than the moscow for a uh, you know for a a newcomer to, uh, you know, the Federation. And it's a very, it's a thriving, a thriving city, um, a city that embraces learning um, the arts generally. I mean, obviously, you know, the State Hermitage Museum is a kind of mainstay of the, you know, on the, uh, of the city's uh, dialect. And it has a, you know, a thriving contemporary art scene, culinary, culinary scene. Um, and, yeah, it's home to Raketa Watches, which, you know, we, we pioneered um, the brand at uh, Pont Rouge. And it, you know, it's very it's kind of quite funny, really. But, you know, I remember uh, in a board meeting, I was challenged about bringing Raketa to Pont Rouge and, uh, somebody indicated that we would never be able to sell timepieces because at that stage, um, Pont Rouge was, you know, fashion centric. Um, and we brought Raketa, which of course, you know, these watches are made in a factory just 23 kilometers from Pietari. And, uh, you know, <laughs> this is the oldest watch factory, um, in Russia. And we, you know, yeah, introduced this little corner of watches into Pont Rouge, which is, you know, the most beautiful building um, on the uh, River Moika in central St. Petersburg. And, you know, almost immediately this uh, brand, this local brand became you know, successful. And I guess that that's a kind of a an underlying theme, an underlying kind of strategy for department stores that they have to be grounded in uh, products and services which reflect the city within which they within which they operate. How would you say a Pont Rouge, or how how would you say running a department store in Russia would be different from? Uh, you said you'd been in the Gulf and you've been in London and now in Oslo. I think the you know many of the uh, you know the challenges are you know are the are the same. I mean you know department stores are getting you know the they're receiving kind of quite mixed press at the moment. You know, there are some 
which you know obviously have outstanding kind of business models and uh, a great deal of kind of notoriety. And there are other, there are others which have really struggled with the onset of kind of e-commerce. Um, and generally, these department stores have suffered because they're typically there. You know, they they can be overspaced. There can be too many of them, and in some senses, you know the you know the product or the brands that they're they're retailing can become uh, ubiquitous. And you know, as you learn at kind of uh, business school, you know, the barriers to entry are low, which is you know a model which um, Michael Porter developed. You know, it, you know these these businesses can be easily replicated. And so really for department stores to remain relevant, um, you have to create a, um, a channel, um, a channel of kind of entertainment um, for want of a better expression where, where you, know, you populate this, this environment with interesting brands, products and experiences and services, which obviously create dwell time and interest basically you're making the department store different from what you might experience online in a huge online emporium which basically has all the same products but not the the space well i think that the you know the the uh yeah the you know the challenge for retail is to is to make that that experience that um, a customer touches and feels to make it engaging and interesting, you know. And if I if I go back to that period in the eighties when I was the book buyer for for Harrods, you know, the you know the discipline required to to run that department, which at that stage was about ten thousand square feet, so a thousand square meters of of literature and book books generally. You know, I had to understand my, I had to understand my my customer. You know, my customers' needs and and wants. And so, you know, I had a a black book of of customers. You know, long before I had a computer database, and you know, I knew that if I was selecting a particular title from you know Jonathan Cape or Chateau and Windus or from Faber and Faber. That you know, when I was selecting that book, I I had a you know a target kind of customer in mind, and really that marriage of of you know knowledge of not only the product that you know the the book that you're selling, um, but also the the person that you're selling to is incredibly important. So. You know, to give you an, an illustration, I remember reading Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe. I read it in, in manuscript. I read it, well, I say in manuscript, I read it as a proof. Um, and I just knew that I needed to order um, order a large quantity of this, of this book. And I was very fortunate, you know, we managed to get Tom Wolfe to come to Harrods and to sign copies of this this novel and you know for many you know that that novel along with you know Brett Easton Ellis's Less Than Zero would be or Jay McInerney's um, 
uh, Ransom. I mean, you know, those, those titles were, were sort of defining pieces of literature of, you know, the kind of like late 20th um, century um, and described, you know, in many senses, you know, uh, you know, very accurately the, you know, the 80s. And so, um, yeah, you know, I, I think to, to make retail engaging, it's you, you, you have to have empathy uh, for, you know, well, for, for people and for, and for customers. If you don't understand um, people, customers, you know, it's, there are many other uh, sort of opportunities, many other opportunities elsewhere. But I, I kind of, you know, my, you know, I, I try to stay close to, to customers and to, and to teams uh, in businesses, particularly in, in uh, department stores, because that's really your, you know, without sounding too, you know, dramatic, that's your kind of lifeblood. Right. Are department stores today very um, under attack from online sales? I mean, some of the online sales are giants these days and appear to sort of do everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, that there are some very good, you know, some outstanding e-commerce, e-commerce uh, players. Um, I mean, you know, one of, you know, one of the big names obviously is, you know, Amazon. And we know, obviously, we, you know, we, we follow brands such as Mr. Porter and Netta Porter and My Teresa, um, you know, Farfetch, for example. I mean, these these kind of Goliaths and kind of e-commerce are, you know, they're doing a, a, a very good job at kind of reaching, you know, new and existing audiences of, of customers. But I think if you, if you, if you want a, an experience where you can engage um, directly with a, a you know, a, a real person, I think department stores and speciality, you know, retailing, you know, provides that or can provide it, you know, really very well. And many of these contenders were kind of very late to adopt e-commerce. And so, you know, e-com and department stores, you know, department stores really over the last decade have been playing kind of catch up um, because, you know, just to remain relevant, you need to be able to do all of these things um, because, you know, the cost of developing retail space is expensive. It's capital intensive. Um, and you need to be able to bat on many different kind of, in many different fields to, to remain uh, kind of relevant and in touch with uh, customers. Would you say that um, the e-commerce sites are driving the, the development we see these days towards more and more intensive sales and discount culture? I I think that, um, you know, the, the discount culture, I mean, you know, certainly, um, you, you know, when I started my career, there were two discernible kind of sale periods, you know, and, and you know, Harrods had a policy 
um, then of not discounting outside the two main sale periods, which commenced in, in January and July. And, you know, first day of Harrods sale back then, you know, we're talking early 80s here, there would be, you know, a queue of customers wrapped around the building to, to, to come and, um, you know, visit the store for the day or part day and, you know, the people would run, literally run through the store to reach uh, some of the uh, the offers which were being, uh, you know, that were, you know, available for those special first first few days of sale. I think that, um, you know, the culture of kind of Black Friday and that sort of pre, pre-Christmas and New Year discounting, um, I, I think for, for some retailers that's been a very difficult thing to, you know, to deal with because, you know, the expectation on the one hand is that you will participate in in this uh, in this activity and then conversely um, you know you're you're actually if you do participate in that act- activity you're actually discounting really in a, uh, a window of trading which where you should be able to do you know you should be able to retail at near kind of full margin um, but you know but that would be you know, it was typically, you know, my training that that was regarded as kind of prime, you know, prime selling period pre-Christmas, you know, November, December. Um, and I think with the, the e-com, um, the e-com sort of pure play e-com businesses, um, I mean, I think that, yeah, certainly that there's more opportunity for you, for you to access those you know, access those uh, discounts during those special campaigns. Um, and so, yeah, it's become, in, you know, increasingly kind of competitive. Um, but there are still some of the e-com players who, you know, adopt the the more, um, dare I say, kind of orthodox model of only discounting uh, at certain periods of the year rather than subscribing to all of the available kind of opportunities to promote uh, a discount. It does seem these days that if you see something you like, you just have to wait for a short period and then it will be a mid-season sale or Black Friday or something end-of-season sale. It does make it a bit hard to know. I mean, how how do they set prices? What what does something actually cost? Well, I think that the, you know, I think in 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 general, um, if there is an item that you know that's been launched for say new season, um, generally those items are not available um, in such great numbers that they will necessarily be there for the uh, always for the uh, for the sale period. I mean, certainly, I think. Um, brands operating in, dare I say, at the kind of, you know, the luxury kind of quartile. I mean, those opportunities to acquire pieces at heavily discounted uh, prices, uh, I mean, I, I think that's less um, less normal. Um, 
I think if it's a brand that is selling their product to a third party where they sell it within their store, yeah, um, and they don't have perhaps the the kind of you know the the ability to sell that product in season, yes, that opens up um, you know a, a opportunity for that brand to be discounted by that you know that third party. But my experience of working with luxury. Uh, is that you know they they um, tend to adopt very clear policies around around uh, you know discounting and um, supply or other supply and any subsequent discounting. So it's kind of um, uh, you know it's quite a complex area. I think where um, say premium and mastige brands are concerned, I think in that space there's a great deal of opportunity to, you know, perhaps to wait six weeks, eight weeks, twelve weeks and find the that the you know the the product has been marked down. I do notice uh, when I visit Oslo and around Stenstrom you have a lot of uh, super premium luxury shops. And it strikes me that there's an element of theatre, which is probably relevant for department stores as well, because I'll see people queuing up outside. And it's obviously what you were saying earlier about um, an event, there's activities. I mean, it means something for them to actually be able to come into the shop. Yeah. I mean, you know, our, our strategy is to be the you know leading contemporary uh, department store um, of Oslo, you know, we're not trying to be, um, you know, a New York store or a Milan store. And, you know, we have the advantage of being part of Promenaden. <coughs> Excuse me. And Promenaden has really led um, and is leading the, the growth of, of, of luxury uh, in Oslo. And you know has been um, very successful in in bringing um, really a an interesting collection of luxury brands to uh, Nedra, Slotsgata, and premium fashion brands to Ovra, Slotsgata. And I think that the you know my, you know my job at Steen and Strom is to is to develop that competency. Um, within the context of the department store. So, you know, what we're, you know, what we're currently embarking upon, Nick, is a a program of uh, development where, you know, we we connect uh, Carl Johans Garter to to Steen and Strom. That entrance is currently being built. You know, the entrance will be something like five metres wide, 17 uh, metres long. And you'll, you know, walk through that entrance in a, in a short while and you'll find yourself in the, if you like, the belly of a new atrium, an atrium that you that will carry you over, over six floors in the store. So, you know, historically the main entrance to Steen and Strom has always, well, back in the day it was Prinzensgarte and then it's subsequently become kind of Nedraslotsgarte. And, now I, I guess the you know the, the the traffic that's passing on uh, Carl Johansgarter will also you know use the new uh, new entrance, 
you know, department stores have a, an incredible kind of responsibility in any city, but, you know, our, our responsibility as, you know, part of promenade is to, is to, you know, to develop um, this part of the city uh, responsibly and to uh, obviously to create opportunity and, and, uh, and value. And, you know, when you think about it kind of logically, why, you know, why, why shouldn't Oslo have a great department store, you know, London, Milan, um, Copenhagen, Berlin, Hamburg, they all have a great department store and, you know, Steen and Strom uh, was pioneering, um, uh, particularly in you know in in in, in the thirties. I mean, the, there used to be a toy workshop in the store. I mean, can you imagine toys being made by hand from wood? Um, and you know, I've talked to uh, some of our, our our customers and, and visitors, and they remember coming to Steen and Strom and having a Napoleon cake on the sixth level with their, their parents and grandparents. And, you know, these are some of the things that we need to put back into, uh, into, into this, this wonderful, you know, building. Um, and we, you know, we're very fortunate to be located, you know, very centrally uh, in the city. Um, and, you know, but I, I, I feel really blessed to kind of be here, you know, having spent the last nine months here um, and in particular, you know, enjoyed the summer here, you know, tremendous kind of weather. This is a great city for kind of walking, cycling, running. Um, you get a sense of kind of people and, you know, the kind of things that they like doing and you can access great things from the city centre as well and quite quickly, which is really lovely. I'm still hung up on the fact that they had a toy workshop and people were having cake with their, their parents and grandparents. I sense a sort of longing for a past I've never known. And uh, will you be bringing the toy, toy workshop back? Well, we, 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 have, um, we have some plans which we're hopeful of kind of implementing uh, in the next few few weeks, actually, where we will uh, bring up um, a specialist kind of offer of of, um, of toys to Steen and Strom. And then, you know, we're, we're actively looking at the archive in a lot of detail because, you know, next year we, we launch the, we effectively relaunch the, you know, the store, although the development program will continue for, uh, you know, several more years um we are you know relaunching our our kind of beauty business and our luxury business on the first level of the store and in the process of defining the uh you know the the upgrade for our minus one level and i think that you know when, when you go back into the archive um, and in particular, you know, some of the you know publications which were produced, I mean, I've got a, a magazine from, is it 1947 on my desk? Um, and this is just full of these beautiful stories of people, you know, working and thriving and, you know, living within this kind of community, uh, you know, of Steen and Strom. Because you know, department store retailing is you know is, is very much like that. It 
you know, it's it's a vocation in 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 many senses, and it provides very interesting and and stimulating, you know, stimulating work. Um, and that's kind of the that's the Steen and Strom that we are in the process of of kind of maybe I should say recreating. I think it's important to put things back rather than kind of take things take things out. Um, and I want to have the very best of Oslo and Norway, you know, for our visitors within within the house of Steen and Strom, unquestionably. You know, whether it's uh, somebody who's, you know, knitting jumpers in the far north or making footwear in the west or, you know, doing something else that's great with cheese, for example. <laughs> you know, these are the things that we need. Um, we need to reflect our, our city and our kind of community and our country. I sense that in a world dominated by hard-nosed business people with their spreadsheets, you are at heart something of a romantic. <coughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I have to say I've been looking at some spreadsheets today and I'm, I, I, you know, I think it's the marriage of really kind of strategy and tactics and certainly creative disciplines with, um, say, process-driven uh, disciplines that gives you, you know, as we learn at business school, you know, our competitive um, advantage. But, you know, I, I've, I was thinking the other day, you know, why is it that I walk 25, 30 minutes to go and have a, a coffee at, say, Supreme Roast Works or Tim Wendelbow, um, you know, or Fuglum, you know, why do I do that? What what is the the emotional engagement that I have with those with those brands? And it's it's built around you know kind of craft and care and attention to kind of detail and great love for for what they do. Um, and I I think that you know without sounding too poetic, you know that's kind of what we have to do in department storytelling. We have to. We have to create that same degree of love, care, and attention, um, and create a kind of tapestry which is emotionally engaging for you know for visitors. And if we fail to do that, um, you know the the business will not succeed. If we do do it, the business will you know will will continue to uh, you know prosper. So yeah, I'm, I. I kind of love, I love all of that. And I think that, you know, we've, we've lived through, you know, kind of dark ages of the nineties where, you know, everything was about replication and kind of large scale, um, the large scale sort of manifestation of, of formats. Yeah. And it's kind of coming full circle where people, you know, um, it just amuses me when I when I meet consultants and they talk about customer experience, and um, you know when they're, they're talking about what a customer uh, feels when they're in a store or in an environment, and they're paying for a service, um, and you know that's kind of that's what we were taught. You know, 
all those many years ago elsewhere. You know, we were taught basically that, you know, customer is king, um, you know, for want of a better expression. But, you know, it's kind of in a sense, it's almost laughable the way that everybody's kind of beginning to understand now that actually, you know, brand, product, service, and how you do stuff, how important that is, you know? Hmm. I think I get what you're saying because most shops I go into today don't really have anything in the way of that. Uh, I don't feel appreciated or welcome or that they're really that interested whether I, I'm there or not. But the ones I do remember are the ones that actually do make a point of that. Well, I mean, I think it's, it, it, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, I, you know, I use a little sushi place here in uh, um and, you know, I walk into that sushi uh, uh, place now and the owner who's from Vietnam, uh, you know, runs this, you know, you know, quite a simple kind of sushi place. Uh, you know, he, he always says hello and he just says one word, which is salmon. Yeah, which is, you know, it, it. he's basically saying, do I want the salmon tray? And, you know, that's kind of what I do want. So, but what he's he's kind of uh, learned very quickly is that, you know, this, this customer kind of, re, you know, returns maybe once a week and his preference is X and he makes it easy for me to, um, you know, to select uh you know, my preferred sushi because, you know, I don't speak Norwegian. He speaks limited English and it, we have some fun in the, in the process. And then there are, you know, some other, other vendors, which perhaps, uh, you know, are slightly, um, you know, they're not as, dare I say it, as kind of, they're not equipped to deal with that level of, of, uh, of, you know, detail. Um, and I think that these things, I think they do, they do matter even in this sort of, you know, digital age where we're kind of, you know, we're immersed in kind of technology and apps. If you can't do the inter, you know, the, the piece face to face, I think it's a huge disadvantage for your, uh, you know, for your, for your business. Um, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm carry on. It strikes me that your sushi guy is in his own way using big data to tailor the customer experience and making it a good deal for you. Yeah, I think, um, I think he's a very good example of, of, um, something that's, that's great in, in this district of uh, Oslo, and certainly the other day, I was in. I went into Pascal, and you know that was kind of more of a dare I say it, a treat, really. Um, and you know the service there was exceptional. Uh, I was on Tolbogata and just ran in there. I thought I'd try the coffee and a little bit of patisserie, um, and it was. It was, you know, exceptional. I, th I think there are, you know, many, um, yeah, many businesses in the city are doing a, you know, a good job at trying to engage with 
you know, with um, their customers. Um, it's just that you know what we shouldn't we shouldn't allow these things to kind of be forgotten. And I think you know the, the, the you know the current pandemic is actually playing to businesses who are good with people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a slightly sweeping comment, but my stance is that actually that this gives um, retailers who are good at what they do the opportunity to kind of you know get even get even better because if somebody has made that that journey that twenty minute train journey into the city or however long uh, to come to your to, to your store, you've got to make that experience. Uh, resonate and you have to make it I think uh, memorable or special um, so yeah I'm kind of all for this sort of yeah this uh, this thing that is it's called service yeah mm. um, you know gap for a period kind of were the masters of the 30 second welcome you know, you'd walk into any gap anywhere in the world and there would always be somebody there to greet you, and then eventually you kind of got tired of tired of that because you felt it was disingenuous, yeah. Uh, and so I kind of go back to kind of serving Michael Caine in the book department at uh, at Harrods. I knew that he loved he loved crime literature or thrillers, yeah. And I would collect a little run of books, you know, and uh, when he came to the department, I kind of sort of present him with a, a selection of titles to, you know, to choose from. And, you know, these, some of these, uh, are they old skills or these skills that you learned a while, while back? I mean, they're, they're very useful um, and they can help you to differentiate I think it shows that you actually cared about your job. You had a, a, a sense of pride in it. So you wanted to make a good impression and show him what you had found for him. It strikes me that maybe a lot of jobs today just don't have the opportunity for that. I mean, I, I can't think of anything uh, sort of less interesting than going to work and not enjoying what you do. And, you know, I you know, I, I enjoy what I do. Um, and for some, it might seem, you know, not so, you know, not so interesting or, or, you know, perhaps even demanding. Um, but actually I, I think that, you know, this type of, this type of work I've, I've, I've always found it, um, kind of appealing and, and interesting. And I, I, I think it's to do with the kind of, you know, the people, you know the people dynamic in uh, these businesses. You know, you learn to work with different types of people from different cultures and backgrounds. And certainly, you know, working in a number of different countries has sort of has broadened my kind of knowledge and understanding of, of you know certain cities and, and and countries, which has been a a real pleasure over the you know, the the last sort of 12 to 
you know, the last 12 to say 14 years, I mean, it's been, it's been wonderful being able to, you know, to do that. And, you know, I have had some very interesting experiences as a result of that opportunity. You can't just mention having interesting experiences and not follow up on that, David. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, when I, when I, when I really think about it, you know, I mean, it's, it, yeah, it is amazing and it has been amazing, but you know, I, you know, I was super lucky at, at Harrods, but I worked very hard and, you know, I, I still to this day kind of go to work, you know, ahead of the, ahead of the, uh, the commuting bell curve. You know, I, I, I'm one of the early arrivals in the office. I, I find the time in the morning invaluable because, um, I can really, that, that's when I'm generally at my most kind of creative and really by kind of mid afternoon, I'm starting to kind of unplug and kind of, want to watch kind of cookery programs um, on Netflix. I've recently developed this passion for kind of watching cookery programs. Um, there's some very, very good ones which, you know, uh, are out there. But, you know, when I think of, um, you know, when I think of Harrods and, you know, I met writers like Eric Newby, um, Sir Wilfred Thesiger, you know, people, Thessinger, who, you know, these are people who traveled widely before, you know, the invention of kind of uh, discounted airline travel. You know, they, they kind of genuinely kind of explored, you know, territories and kind of spaces. People like Laurie Lee, um, Ralph Steadman, uh, you know, Jay McInerney, some of the great American crime writers like Elmore Leonard. Um, yeah. Uh, Kirk Douglas, for example, uh, came to, came to Harrods, Pavarotti, some, you know, um, oh gosh, uh, Nancy Reagan. I mean, you know, we had a, a reputation for staging these, yeah, these fairly significant events um, around, you know, book launches, etc. You know, meeting Terence Stamp. I mean, you know, kind of an icon, um, and somebody who has, you know, he used to wear this incredible kind of houndstooth suit with a, a pale blue, a French pale blue shirt and a kind of knitted tie. Yeah. And these sort of piercing, you know, piercing blue eyes, and you know, he came and uh, signed his, you know, autobiography. He wrote a series of autobiographies in the, I think it's the late eighties and early nineties, which actually were, you know, very successful. And yeah, without sounding kind of boastful, I, you know, at one stage I had a radio show on, um, on uh, LBC, which was you know, one of the, the uh, radio stations in uh, in London. And I used to do a weekly kind of book review. Um, so, you know, you, it required you to work. You know, you had to read a lot of the stuff that was coming across your desk. And, and then, um, 
yeah, go and talk about it, you know, on air, rather like we're doing now, Nick. Um, Selfridges, it, it kind of, yeah, that was a, a different assignment, really, because, you know, if you like, Harrods was the kind of university, and then, you know, Selfridges is where you were able to put a lot of that learning into practice. And I also had the kind of uh, misfortune of being on a television series because uh, you know, we were filmed at um, filmed at Selfridges for a period of about a year as we kind of developed the store. And this programme was screened by BBC, I think it was BBC Two, because it was made under the educational kind of budget. Um, and it kind of, you know, cut, it was one of the first kind of fly on the wall um, sort of documentaries, I suppose, six or seven parts, I think. Um, and that was, yeah, that was both good and less good in kind of equal measure, actually, because you would be, you would be recognised at, you know, airports and stations. And, you know, in, at Selfridges, I was cast as the kind of the, you know, the, the really kind of hardcore general manager, you know, good cop, bad cop, that kind of thing. Um, You know, I rather like to think that it was really, you know, when I got, you know, the Russian experience was super interesting because there, you know, Moscow is a completely misunderstood, at times can be a misunderstood city. And really the opportunity it afforded me was just phenomenal, actually. Um, And, yeah, did many interesting things there, you know, on quite a, yeah, quite a large kind of uh, stage in a way. Um, and, you know, developed and kind of maintained lots of friendships with, with people from all of these kind of periods. Yeah. Um, in fact, just before, you know, our discussion this evening, I was talking with a, uh, somebody from um, Harrods of yesteryear who, is helping me with something that I need to get done. And, uh, yeah, I was having a chat with this person and, you know, it's kind of, uh, it, 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 you know, it's difficult to throw off, you know, this, 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 this stuff, but yeah, many interesting, uh, you know, experiences, um, have been, yeah, enjoyed and, yeah, I mean, I I don't know how deeply you want me to go into this, but you know, <laughs> it's just, it is, you know, it it's kind of phenomenal, really. Um, you know, the the kind of it, it's a rich life in in kind of learning. I'm not saying that it's been you know financially lucrative. It's provided a, a very good living, um, but you know, really what makes it um, super wonderful is, you know, all of the kind of people that you, you kind of meet, you know, along the, along the way. I mean, imagine this, you know, a Saturday at Selfridges in London, Oxford Street, I think it was 97, and Tony Bennett is singing, um, comes and performs in the store. Um, or uh, imagine the launch of the atrium at uh, Selfridges mid nineties, 
And, you know, the, the party for the launch of the new atrium is conducted over all floors of the store and is attended by some really very interesting people, um, many of whom you will you'll remember and may even know. Um, it's kind of quite fun. You know, it's, it, it's fun. That's as well. It's enjoyable. It certainly sounds enjoyable. It's making me uh, rethink uh, my whole career. <laughs> certainly. Um, I see we're running out of time, David. This has oh, been great. I wanted to ask you a couple of things in closing. Okay. Um, do you, to this day, as you walk through the menswear department at Stenostrum, cast a glance at the table with the cashmere scarves and either feel the urge or do you nip over and adjust them? I d- if I see something in the store where, which I think needs, should we call it tweaking, T-W-E-A-K-I-N-G, um, I tend to, I tend to, to do those things. I can't entirely break um, Derek, some of these old old habits. Um, you know, uh, I would like very much to have a table of kind of cashmere scarves at Steen and Strom. Um, in you know twenty four colours, um, there in you know the centre of the uh, menswear department, and certainly when we develop menswear in twenty twenty two, you know we're going to to bring up um, uh, I think many of these kind of nuances to uh, you know to that level of the of of, of the business. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, these things kind of stick, you know, stay with you. You know, very simple things like holding a door open for somebody, or uh, if there's a piece of rubbish on the floor, you pick it up. This, these were the things that you were. Uh, it sounds rather prescriptive, but you were taught these things at uh, at Harrods. You know, um, I was quite amused yesterday. I was on the flight to get coming from the airport, and you know, in my carriage, I was the only person wearing a, a face mask. Um, and you know, one of the one of the passengers had a had a had their feet up against the bulkhead uh, in the carriage. Uh, I just thought it. You know, this is quite strange. Um, maybe it isn't strange, but for me, it appears quite strange. Um, and I think that some of these things tend that kind of training it sticks with you rather, you know. I think that's a very valid point. It's something about maintaining standards uh, and also behaving yourself. Yeah, um, you know, I, I I think one of the the really kind of wonderful things in you know Doha, you know, in in, in Doha we you know. For a business meeting, when you welcome your your guests, you typically offer them tea, coffee, water, and that kind of first sort of let's say the first fifteen to twenty minutes of the meeting is a is a kind of an overture for what is you know, subsequently going to be discussed. Um, and I think some of these, are, I mean, are they old school values? I'm I'm not sure. I, I I just think that they they're the right thing to uh, to do. Um, I think it's important to to be welcoming and to to make people 
feel that they can be part of, even if you're, you know, there's no kind of commercial, subsequent kind of commercial transaction or partnership or whatever. I, you know, it's just good to do that, you know, good to do that stuff. I mean, I flew back the other day to London and, um, you know, the, the plane was pushing back off the stand and the uh, hostess came over and started talking to me and asking me how I was and, you know, it was being kind of quite nice, quite friendly. Um, and I actually, you know, it was also nice having the opportunity to ask her, you know, how's your day been? How are you getting on? You know, you think about, you know, all of these aircraft on the ground at the moment that are not, uh, that are not flying and the people who are not working or, you know, may not have the opportunity to get back to the work that they were doing previously. I think it's super important to, you know, to express some kind of interest and not to sideline uh, people who are, you know, doing those kind of frontline frontline jobs, you know, that they're absolutely critical to most organizations, uh, as critical as the kind of technology behind them. That's very true. I have to admit that I'm a pretty introvert person and I don't tend to have many conversations with people, but in recent months I have appreciated more and more just the small casual conversations you have on a daily basis, if you're lucky, with whoever you meet. So, yeah. I think it's, um, you know, you're you're probably a, a bit of a mix like I am. I think there's, you know, part of your... Part of your dynamic, which is actually quite showman-like, in a nice way, which you know you you have great passion for um, heritage and well-made kit, um, and you know I like the crusade that you you're on with Tweed because I I think it has had previously a kind of unfair. Um, yeah, it's had some unfair kind of publicity. Um, but also you probably enjoy, you know, some time to, to think and to reflect or to plan for the um, for the future. I mean, yet the other day I went up to Eckbergparken and, you know, walking from Schillebeck to, to, you know, that park, it's, I mean, it's not um, a huge long walk, but it's kind of a, you know, it's a reasonable distance. But when you get up there, you've got these fantastic views of the of the city and the fjord, and you've got a completely free, um, yeah, art exhibit to kind of tour, yeah? That's right. That's the statue park, isn't it? Yeah, and it's just, you know, I mean, I, I really enjoyed that on my own the other morning and... Uh, it was quite funny because I passed three lady dog walkers. I mean, this was kind of quite early, Nick. This was like 8.30, I don't know, 9 o'clock, something like that. Sun was kind of beginning to warm up a bit. And they they all said good morning. It's just like really, but you know, I mean, that's kind of, that's a nice thing to, to do, isn't it? I'm walking on the same pathway and they just, say good morning and the guy the, the guy on his kind of 
um, his tractor who tends all the, the park and collects various bits and pieces. He, he said uh, Morgan as, you know, uh, as well, which was kind of nice. Um, I think it's very easy for people to hide behind apps and systems and processes. It's much more difficult to engage and look somebody in the eye and, yeah, uh, kind of have a conversation, or it can be, yeah? Mm. You disagree or agree? No, no, I don't at all. <laughs> I think you're spot on there. Uh, it is a very Norwegian thing, though, to say hello to people you meet when you're on a walk. So if you're walking through the wood, you will have some people who are who will actually look at you and say hi, and others who sort of dodge, look away. But most Norwegians will actually say hi. I mean, I, I think that's one of the, you know, the great things here is that there's so much you can access space really very quickly from the city centre. And, you know, certainly um, as part of our kind of our reimagination of Steen and Strom, um, we very much want to connect with community and, and, and the city. And, uh, you know, certainly that, you know, this autumn, winter, we've, we've deployed a, um, a window scheme which has been produced entirely by a second year student of, um, of art and design who's actually from Thailand but studying here in, in Oslo um, and I think you know it, it's super important for department stores to yeah to, to, to put something back to not only you know develop and trade well, but also to, to actually create opportunity for talent so that it can it can kind of learn and grow. I mean, if you think about it, Giorgio Armani, he was originally a window dresser at Rinascente in Milan. Um, and my understanding is that even now he, he will go into a window uh, for one of his flagship stores in Milan and, and, and dress the window and is kind of fastidious about that kind of, uh, that kind of stuff, which is, I think is really wonderful. You know, I find it inspiring that somebody's prepared to remain close to their business, even if they have the, you know, the wealth and the ability not to. I think it comes down to the, the pride in your work again you actually want to do something really well because you're proud of it. Yeah. I mean, I remember I went to a watch, um, well, actually to a, an eyewear factory in the Jura and I saw um, eyewear being, being made by hand. Yeah. And this, this part of the Jura, which is sort of partway between kind of France and sort of Southwest border of Switzerland I mean, it had a reputation for, you know, this kind of craftsmanship, I believe, during the, you know, the, you know, the Second World War. Um, and when you watch a skilled craftsman uh, producing things by hand, so cutting acrylic by hand and fashioning a pair of glasses, it kind of, 
it's a very humbling experience. It's like watching a great chef at work um, and the ease with which they handle, you know, various foods. I, I think that um, these things are to be, you know, you know, to be admired really, aren't they? Um, craftsmanship, quality, heritage, um, attention to to detail, um, yeah, personality, character, standards. These are, are great things to be able to uh, develop in and enjoy in people. You mentioned you enjoy watching uh, cooking shows. I enjoy watching shows where they are working on vintage car bodywork. That to me is remarkable when you see someone with shaping steel or aluminium plates on the English wheel, making it all fit. That yes, is craft. There's a guy um, called um, Outlander, um, and he he takes you know defenders, you know, Land Rover defenders, and he kind of does some really amazing work with defenders. He actually enhances the defender. And um, I've seen some of his posts on Instagram and some other places. And, you know, what he achieves with a one, you know, with a Defender 90 or a 110 and the workmanship that he conducts to kind of create what is possibly, a, you know, the most perfect workhorse vehicle, Um it's just kind of remarkable, really, that somebody has that degree of of um, ability and uh, you know understanding. And you know, I was watching Wolfgang Puck cook steak the other evening on a show, which um, you know the first thing that struck me was his confidence and his um, ability to handle this. Uh, with great ease and the degree of kind of seasoning was, I thought, I mean, you know, there was no measurement, Nick. It was just instinct, knowledge, um, a bit like a, a, you know, sushi chef who can count the number of rice kernels. Yeah. And knows exactly when they've got the, you know, the kind of the right number. Um, and after, eight years of training can create, you know, wonderful, uh, you know, wonderful sushi. But I, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a sucker for all of that. You know, I, I, I think as you get a little bit, dare I say, older, you start to appreciate this stuff. Um, I mean, greatly. I'm not saying that you're old. I think I'm probably older than you, you know. But not that many years. I would, you know, I was thinking the other day about the first time that I saw craft work at the Lyceum Ballroom in London. And it was a Sunday evening and it was raining and London kind of early 80s was on a Sunday evening was, you know, a, an acquired taste really. And I just remember that, you know, that, that, that concert and that performance and really, that was a kind of a, a gateway to, 
you know, a whole kind of musical genre, which has become, you know, really, uh, really absorbing, you know, absorbing in a, almost the same way as watching Wolfgang, you know, Wolfgang Puck cook, cook, cook steak, but cook steak in a kind of a loving way. Yeah. I sense that we're getting into uh, another long, long uh, possible um, uh, session here now. <laughs> this is brilliant, David. Because um, I was, I was about to say you, what you said about craft work there really resonated with me. Because when I moved to England in '82, okay, as a, as a young boy, I was 14 at the time, I think. Uh-huh. Um, I came from listening to Norwegian music, mm-hmm. which at the time was really really poor okay. so when i when i came to oxford and started listening to the radio and watching top of the pops and so forth it was a whole new world of music all the early synth pop new orders blue monday thompson twins whatever i mean so much great music and that was a life-changing experience for me because what i came from was very very poor and it started me off in a well, for many, many years, I mean, music was basically all I did. I, um, you know, I've got a, I've got a great love of um, of music. I mean, if you've seen the Undertones play Guildford Civic on a Sunday evening after, I think at that gig they shared the stage with Sham Sixty Nine. You know, Sham Sixty Nine were from Hersham, and. Jimmy Percy was the lead singer, and there was a, a line from one of their songs lent Hersham Boys, Hersham Boys, Lace Up Boots and Corduroys, yeah? So they, mm-hmm. they clearly had a love of, you know, Doc Martens and, um, yeah, slightly heavier kind of, you know, corduroy. But you, you have to put this in context because, you know, growing up in the 70s, there was this kind of watershed, watershed um, moment when, you know, Fleetwood Mac was no longer played, and suddenly, you know, Hong Kong Garden came into view. You know, this is after um, what I'm trying to describe here is you would go to a go to a, a kind of a, a, a you know a pub or a wine bar or a club, and you know. Back in sort of 77, 78, they were still kind of wedded to the world of kind of Fleetwood Mac and, you know, Dire Straits and the like. And then suddenly you started to hear, you know, undertones, you know, the police, Susie and the Banshees, um, you know, the jam. I remember I saw the jam seven times, you know, how could you not be influenced by what they wore? You know, we used to we used to go to stores like you'll probably remember some of these like Flip on the King's Road and Robot on the King's Road. You know, if we had money, or say Johnson's on the King's Road, and then of course there were shops like Boy. Um, you know, this was the kind of fabric of the of the kind of the nation at the time and. You know, you had magazines like, you know, ID, you know, and if you were really cool, you you were photographed somewhere in black and white and your image was 
you know, uh, put into you know one of these fanzines. Um, I was really jealous because my brother, who was a rockabilly at the time, um, he had he was photographed on the you know on the somewhere on or off the King's Road. But you know, I, I love all of that kind of texture, that kind of uh, you know that energy which embraces many different styles and textures and cultures and I love that I think it's I think it's you know so important that things are not bland and you know systemized and to the point at which they become you know kind of uh, you know kind of boring I saw craft work again a few years ago in St Petersburg I mean that was a very different gig to the gig that I went to at the Lyceum um on a on a much bigger you know much bigger scale, and I, you know I saw the prodigy there um, as well. Underworld. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know that I love Underworld, um, and you know I've seen them in big, small, and uh, you know medium sized venues. They were due to come here in Oslo, and I was really hopeful that we could go together and and see that gig. But you know, for all the obvious reasons, the you know the the gig was uh, the concert was uh, cancelled, but you know that degree of kind of um, talent when it, you know, when you're confronted by that, it's just I, I don't know about you, but it just it's the same as that cashmere scarf on that table in in Harrods or Steen and Strom. It just makes the kind of hairs on your back stand up, on the hairs on the back of your neck. You know that sense of shiver it's kind of those moments i think are, are really really important um or at least i find them uh you know important one of the things that we're working on nick is a soundscape for steen and strong this soundscape will be updated every quarter so you'll be able to come to the store and download a, a soundscape um, and some of that soundscape will be very familiar, but not familiar in the way that most people would think of a soundscape in a department store. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Yeah, we try, you know, we're going to try. I think it's important to push things, yeah? I, I mean, I, I don't know whether you've passed Mimo, the restaurant down on uh, Borvika. I've not eaten there yet, but I, I passed the doorway the other day. And, you know, this doorway is a celebration of understatement, yeah? I, I think I have passed by, but I've never been in there. I want. I very much want to go there. I very much want to try that. I mean, I, I'm not sure that I could do all of the courses, but, um, I, yeah, I really want to experience that because apparently it's it's kind of outstanding. But I think it's... It, you know, it's nice to contrast that with something that's quite, um, you know, that's more accessible. So something like, a, for example, like a Fuglen or, a, you know, Supreme Roast Works, you know. Mm. Um, I enjoy these these contrasts. I think it's important to enjoy contrast. Yeah. Indeed. See, we're about half an hour over time now, oh, David. You've got a lot of editing to do, man. You've got to just cut this 
I'm really enjoying myself. I, I did want to ask you, sort of, as a closing question, um, where you are on the whole sustainability thing. Um, where, so sustainability where am I? To running a department store, where are you on sustainability? I think we've got um, we've got. Uh, I was going to say that we've got quite a lot of work to do. You know, we've we it's in our master plan, and it's in the in that top group of tasks within the context of the master plan. And you know, we're we're really. I was going to say. Are we embarking? I don't know whether we're embarking or whether we're, you know, just continuing the journey. But I feel like we've got to, we've got a lot of work to do um, in terms of improving our 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 stance in this um, in this area of operation. You know, and I think it, you know, more generally, you know, there's, there's a big need to do that. But I mean, in the city, you know, there is a there's a lot of food which is um, packaged and you know quite quickly kind of prepared, mm. uh, and I I think that we've you know we've got to take a, a you know responsible we've got to be yeah responsible and adopt best practice. So at the moment, what we're doing, Nick, is we're kind of benchmarking um, these standards against kind of international. Uh, level kind of competition. I think that we've there are certain actions that we we have particularly you know around promenade and where we I would regard I I think we're quite sparing. We're very very careful with um, with the things that we that we use within the culture of our our you know our business. Um, I'd very much like to remove all of the kind of plastic uh, packaging. I mean, for cheeses and for fish and for things like that, it's kind of almost unavoidable, um, or it appears to be the case. Um, and I think that we're, yeah, we're on that journey, and we need to we need to keep it uppercase as part of the, uh, the strategy of the business as we move forward. Okay, David, this has been a total pleasure uh, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Is it, has it been interesting? Well, I mean, I didn't tell you about, um, you know, the, the uh, tablecloth that Ralph Steadman drew on for me or bumping into Robbie Coltrane, you know, drunk outside the Groucho Club. Um, I think that part of my life is probably best forgotten, but you know, there we go. <laughs> and that was all for this week's episode, a new episode next week. If you'd uh, like to investigate further, uh, my blog is at welldresseddad.com, Instagram at welldresseddad. Um, you've been listening to Gomology. Please uh, leave a rating and a review if you like. I'd really appreciate it. And if you'd like to get in touch, the email address is welldressedad at gmail.com. Thanks a lot and catch you next week.